Well, I am uh, up here again to reintroduce to you our newest field staff, Clark Petticord. It's kind of ironic that he is our newest field staff since he has been part of the ministry of this church for at least 10 years longer than anybody who's else who's on staff. Uh, he has ministered in Germany as the leader of the Campus Crusade organization over there uh, as one of our missionaries. And it was just this year that he um, has joined the staff of this church as a field staff. We'll be going back shortly to Germany. Uh, it's been a real treat to have he and Anne around, uh, just opportunity to spend time with them, hear what God is teaching them, let uh, them minister to us here. It has been a real delight for me, and uh, therefore it's a delight for me to share him with you this morning. He's a man of God who I have learned enormous amounts from, so I would encourage you all to listen to him. Clerk. After hearing that I've been around that long, I wondered if I should get a couple of canes uh, to come up here. But uh, as Bill Cosby said, I started out as a child. It's good to be with you. As you'll recall from the past weeks, we've been looking at the letter of the Apostle Paul, the first letter that he wrote to the Christians in the seaport city of Corinth on the Greek coast. We're going to be talking this morning about chapter 9. We're going to be trying something new this morning, and I'd like you to be a little patient with us if our technology isn't entirely in sync. Uh, It's kind of a new idea, and uh, we'd like to try it just a little. Uh, We're going to be having the text in just a moment uh, on the overhead, and we'll be following along the text as we uh, go through the chapter uh, together. Most of us are pretty uncomfortable with confrontation. I don't know about you, but uh, when I get into a confrontational situation, uh, my stomach kind of tends to tighten up, And I get flustered uh, easily. The Germans have an expression for this. They say your chickens start squawking. And uh, I think that I have worked with some people that I know that's not true of. They just seem to thrive on confrontation. Uh, They're the irregular people of my life, usually, in leadership. But um, I'm not that way. And most of us, I think, are uncomfortable when we sense uh, an aggressive situation that we're confronting. Uh, First of all, we're uncomfortable with the aggression that's directed toward us, and then we're perhaps also uncomfortable with our own feelings of aggression. We either try to put a cap on them right away, kind of like oil men trying to stop a gusher, uh, or we just let her rip. And uh, then the result seems to often be that we just kind of spew crude oil on ourselves and everything in the vicinity. And... Either way, the result is usually that we feel guilty later because we somehow failed to live up to what we uh, really think we should be as followers of Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul, though, in this passage, seems to be able to deal pretty effectively with a very aggressive situation. Uh, And I think as we look at this passage, not only will we learn the actual situation that was confronting the Apostle Paul 
and the people that were challenging his authority and his, even his integrity. But I think we can perhaps learn also how we can deal with similar experiences through his, uh, his example because successful living uh, and successful ministry does require constructive uses of our feelings of aggression and when we're confronted with aggressive situations. We've been studying the first chapter of uh, the, the first book of Corinthians that Paul wrote, and we're going to be dealing today, as I said, with chapter 9. What struck me again and again as I studied this was that Paul was able to defend himself against attack, attack against him personally and against his work. As you recall from the past weeks that we've been looking at this letter together, a crisis of authority lies behind Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Apparently, a group within the church had challenged Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ. Specifically, they were pretty bent out of shape that he would have the audacity to tell them that they should avoid participating in feasts in the pagan temples that dotted the city of Corinth. We saw last week that these people in chapter 8, as Paul expresses it, uh, claimed to have knowledge that idols were really nothing. They were free, therefore, to do whatever they wanted in relationship to the pagan temple ceremonies. But Paul argues they were looking at things from a wrong perspective. Personal behavior, Paul insisted, should not be governed by knowledge or by some sort of code that we develop as what a Christian really should do, or even by the fact that we are free in Christ. Instead, Paul argued, our behavior should be governed by the principle of love for one another. But Paul knew all too well that his detractors in Corinth would probably not be convinced by his arguments. These were folk whom Paul had said were arrogant talkers. They could very well be the same people that he describes in his second letter to the Corinthians. They were saying, Paul's letters are weighty and impressive and forceful. But in person, Paul is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Paul was faced with some very aggressive challenges to his authority as an apostle and even to his own integrity. And as we come to chapter 9, we'll see that Paul deals with two major objections to his authority and to his integrity as an apostle. Let's look first of all at chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Paul allowed himself no illusions about the opposition he was facing. He accurately diagnosed the issues that were involved. And we'll see as we go through this chapter that there were two major points of attack that Paul was being faced with. First of all, there was a group in the church that said, how can Paul possibly be a real apostle? Don't we know that real apostles are sponsored by the church? They receive their living from the church? Isn't that the way that people that are really honest-to-goodness apostles operate? That was the first challenge. The second challenge was that they said, how can this Paul have the presumption 
to tell us that we shouldn't go to feasts in the pagan temples. He himself is inconsistent in his own behavior. For example, he eats non-kosher food when he's with Gentiles. But when he's with Jewish people, he eats only kosher meat. Isn't that inconsistent of Paul? How can he have the audacity to try to tell us what we should do, whether we should attend ceremonies at pagan temples or not? Paul's personal and spiritual ministry life were being attacked. And we're seeing, we see in this chapter the way that he dresses it. First of all, he addresses the issue of apostleship. He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, one of the criteria of an apostle that was sent by Jesus was that he had seen the risen Lord. Uh, the word apostle means simply one who has been sent. And throughout the New Testament, there are different types of apostles. The apostle, it says in the book of Hebrews, is the Lord Jesus. He was sent by the Father. There is a group of apostles, though, that were sent out by the Lord Jesus himself. And then there are also apostles that are sent out by the churches and the Holy Spirit moving through the churches. Paul is saying he belongs to this group of apostles that has been personally commissioned and sent out by Jesus himself. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord, Paul says. He points out that as an apostle, he was the one that was responsible for the Corinthians coming to faith in Christ at all. And he kind of turns the tables on them in verse 2, and he says, even though I may not be an apostle to others, maybe even these critics within the congregation that might have come after he was there, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. He was turning the tables on the Corinthians and he was saying, if I'm not an apostle, then you're not in the real faith in Christ. Because you came to faith through me. And you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. But then he begins to address this issue of the fact that his behavior did not fit the standard that they had come to expect of the other apostles in verses 4 through 6. He says, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas? That was Paul's sidekick on his early missionary journeys. Is it only I and Barnabas? who must labor for a living. Now, part of the problem here is that philosophers and religious teachers in the world of the time of the Romans and the Greeks normally were supported by one of four means. They would travel around from city to city and teach and try to gather followers. Either they charged fees for their lectures, somebody would stand at the door and take fees, as sell tickets, so to speak, as folk came in, or they would be sponsored by either individual patrons or by a group of individuals who were committed to their work. Or they would go around begging. Or they would labor with their hands. They would perform a, a task. They would be laborers. Now, the problem for the Corinthians was, apparently, it was not simply that Paul refused to accept support from them 
patronage perhaps from the wealthier folk in the congregation or from a collection in the congregation. But the problem was that Paul supported himself by laboring as a tradesman. And apparently some of the people in the Corinthian congregation didn't think that this was uptown enough. That a real apostle who would be the apostle of their congregation certainly couldn't labor as a tent maker with his hands. And so there was a tension in here, and Paul addresses the fact that he doesn't fit, his behavior doesn't fit with the behavior that they expected of the other apostles. Now, the easy way to have answered this would have been for Paul to say, well, actually, all apostles should work with their hands. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he actually admits the principle. And we'll turn to verse 7. He serves, who serves, it says, as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk? From ordinary life, Paul establishes the principle that those who minister the gospel have the right to be supported. Human life itself, daily life, teaches us that this is reasonable. But then he goes on and he says, I'm not saying this just from a merely human point of view. It isn't just a good idea. Do I say this from a merely human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have threshing machines like we do. And so the grain would be harvested with scythes, usually. They'd go through and cut it down. Then they'd bring it into a threshing floor which was an area, a courtyard usually, that was covered with stone. And then an ox would be hitched up to a sledge that was a threshing sledge. And it would, the ox would drag, be driven and the, drag the sledge back and forth across the grain, across the sheaves of grain. And the kernels would be broken out and the grain separated from the sheaves. Now in the Old Testament, in the Torah... The first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And Paul says, picking up that idea, is it only about oxen that God is concerned? No, he says. God is concerned about oxen, but surely he says this for us. The application for us, he says, is because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. And he goes on in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Paul explains and underlines the fact that he did have the right to their financial support. But in verse 12, it says, If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? We're the ones who led you to faith in Christ. But Paul says, no, even though we have this right, we did not use it. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul exercised his freedom by giving up his rights. Now that's a concept that is very difficult for us to compute, isn't it? To exercise our freedom to give up our rights to something. You know, this is the challenge that Paul 
leaves us with as we read this chapter. He was careful to maintain his own dignity. He argued, yes, I do have the right to your support. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what's offered on the altar? This is true in your own religious experience, he says to the Corinthians. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But, he says in verse 15, I have not used any of these rights. And you can almost hear the uh, sort of intake of breath as the people heard that. They thought, oh boy, here it comes. He hasn't used this right yet, but now he's going to ask us for something. And then he says, no, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. A commission had been given to Paul. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Paul says, because I have been commissioned to preach the gospel, I don't have a choice in a sense. This is what I really feel compelled to do. But my reward is this, and this is kind of paradoxical. He says, my pay is to receive no pay. My reward is to receive nothing. He's kind of plain on words. Paul said he was free to do something that was not imposed on him, and this established his freedom as an apostle. The question, though, that Paul addressed here, that he said was the important issue, was that in any given situation, what is best for the cause of the gospel? That is what will decide what our behavior should be. Now, we can almost hear Paul interacting with these critics, with these folk who were attacking him in the church in Corinth. I'd like to take kind of a little excursion right now into uh, the area of theology and... uh, Bear with me. The passage we're looking at this morning is woven into the fabric of the whole letter to the Corinthians. But we're faced with a problem. In particular, we're faced with the fact that when we open our Bible to the epistles and also to some of the other texts, we find that it's often tied into very specific issues and questions that rose up in a specific situation. In a sense, when we open the epistles, we're reading someone else's mail. Now, not surprisingly, we sometimes are puzzled by the things we read. We don't have the same background information. When we try to understand the text of the letter to the Corinthians, we face a situation that is strikingly like reading someone else's mail. Now, it can be exhilarating to read somebody else's mail sometimes, but it can also be confusing. What does this imply? I think first and foremost, it implies that we have to approach the text of Scripture humbly. And we have to admit that our understanding and our interpretation will always be less than 100% accurate. That's part of being human. We just don't have all of the information. But it does not mean that we cannot be sure in regard to the documents of Scripture about what Scripture really teaches. Uh, 
It simply means that some things are clearer than others in scriptures. The major teachings of the Bible on issues that touch our relationship with God are clear. This is what the old teachers of the church called the perspicuity of scripture. And that's a complex word for basically the idea that it's like an optical instrument. When you look through an optical instrument like a telescope, the central focus, the center of focus, is clear. But as you move out toward the edges, often the understanding, the vision becomes fuzzier. And that's perhaps the experience that we have when we look at certain portions of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that the teaching of the Bible isn't clear about the things we need to know for our salvation. Maybe you've had the experience of talking as I have with a friend or a family member and having them say, well, there's so much disagreement between different denominations about the, what the Bible says. How can you be sure that your interpretation is right? Uh, cults and sects play on this idea a lot, and they say, well, there's so much disagreement about what the Bible says. What we need is an authoritative prophet or a teacher who can tell us what the proper interpretation is. Have you ever heard that? This is a major misunderstanding of the doctrine of Scripture. I was cleaning up our apartment one Saturday morning a couple of years ago in Germany, and I turned on the radio. It was tuned to the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, in London, and uh, a special program, it really surprised me, uh, a special program was being broadcast live from the cathedral at Canterbury, which is the mother church of the Church of England. The occasion was the visit of Pope John Paul II to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the Church of England and the Roman Church separated over 450 years ago. And this was the joint worship service where the visit of the Pope to the Archbishop took place. And in the service, the service was led in the cathedral by three people. The Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury representing the Church of England, and a representative of one of the so-called free churches or non-established churches in England. I think it was a Baptist uh, fellow that was there. During the service, one of the great classical creeds of the Christian faith, the Nicene Creed, was recited as a responsive reading with the congregation. The Pope led the section on God the Father, the Archbishop of Canterbury led the section on God the Son, and probably quite appropriately, the Baptists led the section on the Holy Spirit. And uh, as the congregation interacted in this responsive reading, uh, they confessed this creed. That's what you do with a creed, is you confess it before the seen and unseen world. At the end of the, the reciting of the creed, all three, the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Baptist fellow, said in unison, this is the faith of the church. And the hair stood up on the back of my head, on, the, on my neck, when I heard that. And a thrill just went through me. Because this is indeed the faith of the church. Who are the false prophets or the heretics of the past in comparison to that? This is the faith of the church. Now, the historic faith may not always be popular and might not even be a majority in a given situation, but this is what God's people have come to recognize. And I just wanted to share that because we're dealing in the 
first letter of Paul to the Corinthians sometimes with issues that aren't entirely clear to us. But there are things that are very clear. And this is the faith of the church. And this is what Paul was defending in his apostleship as he uh, writes to the Corinthians. He says in verse uh, 18, What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. And then in verse 19, he outlines the major principle of his entire work and his entire ministry. He says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And this is Paul's freedom in Christ. He was free to be totally unencumbered, totally unattached to any claims that any other person might have on him. He was free in Christ. But he used this freedom not for self-fulfillment, not for self-aggrandizement, but in order to become a servant to others, to win, as he said, as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. In other words, he's saying he himself is not bound to the Jewish ceremonial traditions. But, he said, I put myself willingly under that so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, to those who are outside of the community of Israel, I became like one not having the law. Though, and here he says, that doesn't mean I'm morally unattached, that there's no true moral north in my life. He says, I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. I follow the example and the teachings of my Savior. But in these issues that are indifferent, whether it's the type of meat I eat or whether I kick a football on Sunday afternoon, I am willing to conform to those whom I want to reach with the gospel, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, Paul said, to win the weak. Paul never lost sight of the real issue. And he goes on in the last part of verse 22 to say, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And this is the principle that Paul says is the heart of making decisions about Christian life and ministry. I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I have a friend who ministered for many years in Eastern Europe. Uh, He would uh, smuggle Bibles through and meet with Christian pastors and teachers in different parts of uh, Romania, Bulgaria, all of the Eastern Bloc countries. And... uh, Sometimes he'd have to park three or four blocks away from where he was supposed to go to a meeting. But after the uh, Iron Curtain fell, things got kind of boring for him. And uh, I just saw him about six months ago. And we were visiting together, and I said, what are you going to do now? And he says, I'm going to go to China. (laughs) And we talked for quite a while just about the challenge that that represented And I said, what are some of the issues that you're having to face going into that situation? And he said, well, he said, let me tell you the one that I think is the most interesting. And uh, uh, I'll share this with you, and you can kind of reflect on it, too. I have to admit, I don't have all the uh, 
I's dotted and the T's crossed with this. It's interesting, and I think it relates to what Paul was saying here, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Uh, He said one of the challenges that we're going to face training uh, Chinese Christian leaders is this. Uh, As you know, the church in China has grown in a way that was totally unexpected. The communist authorities tried to crush the Christian faith from 1949 on, and there were massive persecutions. Uh, But as more and more information has become available, the Church of Christ is, in many places in China, alive and well and growing. And each time there are estimates about how many believers there are in that culture, they seem to go up a little bit higher. And there are millions of Christians. They still have their challenges and face persecution. But my friend said, the issue that I am dealing with is this. A majority of the pastors and evangelists who have been responsible for the growth of the church in China are women. And I said, oh, that's interesting. How's that? And he said, well, here's what happened. As you know, in China, as in many of the Marxist countries, Uh, travel was very tightly controlled. Whenever you had to leave your city to go to another city, you usually need travel documents to cross borders to other parts of the country. And the pastors and evangelists in the early days began to realize that they were being pretty closely scrutinized and often arrested when they had to cross these checkpoints. But they also noted that the authorities didn't pay much attention to their wives And so, being creative evangelists and pastors, they said, we're going to train our wives to do this. And so the women were trained to be the pastors and evangelists. The men stayed home and plowed the fields and cooked the meals. And the Church of Christ grew by leaps and bounds. My friend said, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to deal with this. But I think somehow that the body of Christ in China recognized something here that Paul was talking about, where he said, I've become all things to all people, where he said, I'm free, but at the same time, the core issue is not freedom or the exercise of our rights. That is not the goal. The goal is the salvation of others, whether the gospel will receive a proper hearing or not. The model of this, of course, is our Lord himself, where he said, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich in him. And Paul then turns to his friends in Corinth, starting in verse 24. He says, Now, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run then in such a way as to get the prize. Run the Christian life, Paul says, in such a way as to not be disqualified from your crown, from your reward. What is he saying here? He's saying that not only through his own ministry, but also through the life of our Lord himself, we have an example of the fact that by exercising our rights, we can be disqualified. But that if we are really going to run the race... The secret is to have our freedom 
to give up our rights by exercising appropriate self-restraint. Everyone who competes in the games, there were athletic games like the Olympic Games that took place near Corinth, and everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul says to his friends in Corinth, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. I beat my body and make it my slave, myself. We are meant to cross the finish line in the Christian life. And Paul is encouraging his friends here to be willing to give up their rights in order that others might live through the gospel of Christ. If we don't do that, Paul says, we abandon the race itself because we neglect to follow our Lord's example, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. And this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus gave up his rights for us. And the heart of Christian living is not that we don't have rights, but that we can choose freely in the appropriate situation. Not to give up the truth of the gospel. On that front, Paul never compromised. But as far as our own personal comfort and our own personal uh, feeling good is concerned, Paul said, I'm willing to give up my rights. I'm willing never to let meat cross my lips again, he said, if it causes a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. We're going to close with a song that's one of the classic missionary songs of the church. It's uh, O Zion Haste, Thy Mission High Fulfilling, to tell to all the world that God is love. And as we sing this, the idea that the songwriter picked up was that the people of God from the New Covenant, that's us, are like Zion, the people of God in the Old Testament, who were to be a light set on a hill for all of the nations of the world. And as we think about this, I'd like to call your attention particularly to the fourth verse in relationship to our friends who are going to Jamaica and their situation. It says, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And here's the interesting point. And all thy spending, Jesus will repay.